0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Leonardo Drew, the Madison Square Park Conservancy in New York City is presenting Leonardo Drew City in the Grass. Drew's over 100-foot-long work presents an abstracted cityscape atop a patterned carpet recalling panorama. It's on view through December 15th. Drew's work is also on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles in Open House Elliot Hundley, a collection installation that Hundley curated. It's at Mocha's Arata Isazaki Design Building through September 16th. Finally, it's a true summer of Drew in New York this year, as Gallery Le Long is showing new work through August 2nd. Leonardo Drew makes sculptures and works on paper from natural materials that Drew has often oxidized, burned, or otherwise nudged toward collapse. His work often references American and transatlantic history and social injustice. In 2009, the Blaffer Gallery at the University of Houston organized a mid-career survey of his work. The catalog's really terrific. Drew has also had solo shows at the Fabric Workshop in Philadelphia, the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, and at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. One quick note before we get to this week's program, as you probably know, the sound for our show was created by the artist Steve Roden. This weekend, Veal Los Angeles opens Roden's latest solo exhibition, Cloud Cloud. It'll be on view... The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O. Naturel, the first American survey of one of the U.K.'s most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O. Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O. Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer details at hammer.ucla.edu hammer museum free for good this summer at the wexner center for the arts at the ohio state university see barbara hammer in this body a world premiere exhibition that captures the full scope of work by the pioneering artist and lgbt cinema icon cecilia vicuña lo precario the precarious a collection of more than 50 of the chilean born artists lyrical intimately scaled sculptures and Jason Moran, the first museum exhibition of visual art by the world-renowned jazz musician and composer. They're all on view at the WEX June 1st through August 11th, along with a site-specific mural by Alicia McCarthy, which is on view through August 1st. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Peter Paul Rubens is recognized as one of the most celebrated painters of all time, but his international acclaim was far from an assured outcome. Witness his rise to the highest ranks of European painters in Early Rubens on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Focusing on what is arguably Rubens' most innovative period of production from 1608 until about 1620, the exhibition showcases almost 50 works, including large-scale paintings never before seen in the U.S. Don't miss your chance to see Early Rubens at the Legion of Honor before it closes on September 8th. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. And we're back. Leonardo Drew, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. (laughs) It's nice to meet you. Let's start by talking about the big new sculpture of yours, City in the Grass, in Madison Square Park in New York. It includes three skyscraper recalling forms that extend upward from a carpet-like form that evokes a Persian rug. Let's talk about the three vertical forms first. So they certainly recall skyscrapers, New York's. But for me, they also recall the towers and proportions of Angkor Wat and and other ancient structures. Angkor Wat being, of course, in Cambodia. Is that a connection you wanted the piece to
1: contain? Well, I mean, there is a lot of information embedded in uh, in us uh, collectively. So when it comes to these types of structures, you can think of stupas. Uh, You can also go into cinema and think of some of the imagery like uh, The Wizard of Oz and also movies like uh, Metropolis you know Franz Kafka's kind of Metropolis. I think that like uh, as I'm sort of like looking at uh, these uh, types of uh, images in the end I'm understanding the impact overall to people who may um only know about Fritz Lang's uh, Metropolis and sort of like embed uh, this idea of his city uh, and its complexities and, and its depth or, you know you know they would read it through that lens. On the other hand this thing is now going to be framed uh, by this uh, very structure, it will echo, begin to echo all these things surrounding it. If we were to show it in Angkor Wat, you know, it would resemble stupas. You know, so so it's. Uh, I think that it, it it's a piece that will morph and become uh, depending on the observer, you know, or the viewer.
0: You mentioned film. You are a big film buff. You have a film library. How big is your film library? You 3,500
1: films <laughs> and still adding. So uh, uh, I, I'm sure it's over 35 at this point. But, but the, the, the follow of cinema and understanding structure, uh, how things compositionally come together visually are, I think, the, you know, are, are points of with my facility as an illustrator. I was asked by DC and Marvel Comics uh, when I was a child. I would have been like when I was maybe 16 or 17 uh, to come and work for them. So it's an interesting sort of like, you know, a journey to go from uh, understanding how to sort of put things together, how to draw, which is with, with something that, that artists used to be able to, you know, where, you know, you need to be able to do those things to be called an artist. You need to be able to draw, you know, and, and, that, and then from there be able to paint and then to sculpt. But now people find their voices in different mediums from video to uh, film. And and it all is considered art. Also, I understand that. I also, you know, glean most of my information from all these different sources. It's a matter of like just, you know, what is it you're you're after, you know, like uh, spiritually and otherwise, and then you end up abstracting that and creating.
0: You know, when you're working on an object or or you're 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 uh, addressing a commission. Do you ever go into that film library specifically looking for something, thinking of something? Well,
1: films are on all the time. I mean, it's on right now. I mean, it's like, oh, there, there's never a moment when there's not a television on. There's like, a, there's a living area televisions on. There's a, you know, the studio. And people always go on about the, uh, I guess, the Art 21 uh, documentary. And they see this uh, the, the television on with black and white films. This is not staged. It's just, uh, you know, you come into my space and this is what you're going to experience. And so, uh you know, within each space, there are like uh, three working areas in the, uh, in the studio, and there are televisions in each one of those spaces. but you know, am I you know like I have assistants, and they you know pretty, you know just put up with me <laughs> and whatever I need to sort of like have on. but I grew up around five brothers. So the very idea that I, I can't work in a uh, in a space that doesn't have uh, some sort of interaction, some madness around it. So, I need to sort of create in chaos in order to sort of realize my best side of myself. So, it, it, it's a, it's a, the television is a, and the uh, movies are, are, are part of a process that I need to sort of have around. You know, like when I go downstairs uh, initially in the morning, it, you know, like I program everything so they know not to touch, <laughs> don't touch the TV, don't touch the TV, do not touch anything. You know, it's like, uh, I, you know, I, I will, you know, orchestrate that. I need to, you know, have my uh, cue is for math, you know.
0: We talked about the cityscape element in in City in the Grass. I think I see cityscapes in your work going back to 2012 or so. Works like number one, number 153. They've got to be intentional, of course. So
1: Uh, you would think. No, no. Honestly, I'll tell you. These things happen by happenstance. It's like um, that. The, the whole idea of the city uh, came from the kids who play outside of my studio now my area is like the biggest area in the in the neighborhood so for the kids so they want to play there and so like uh, and they can see inside the studio so they can see me working now if you're working you know uh, on the, on the floor on these pieces I have to start on the floor uh, they're not on the wall first; they start on the floor so they, they can see these things, and they go on to say, Oh, it looks like it's you know, it's like New York City, it looks like the uh, skyline, you know. And and I'm sitting here and it's like I've been hearing this for some years now. And then I end up hanging them on the wall, and then now it's become Bat Plus, you know. But the fact is, when we decided to do City in the Grass, it was like, Okay, uh, you're gonna be doing an outdoor and you're not really a you know, outdoor sculptor, so you're up against what kind of elements here? There are weather. All these things uh, uh, that are, you know, probably going to sort of cause some situation. So if I built something gigantic, which is what we had initially thought we we're going to do, like a 60 foot tall uh, sculpture. I say, well, I mean, I can see these things uh, coming out and, you know, decapitating someone. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, I'm not like, you know, I'm not made for uh, this, this kind of situation. So I had to be smart and I had to sort of like say, OK, let's uh, figure out another way. But I just recall like the kids playing outside the uh, studio. And it was like, wow, from their perspective, you know, they're like Gulliver. And they're looking down onto Park. So it's, it's, a, it's just a, uh, you know, it was just a no-brainer. It's like, okay, you need to sort of take this thing down, you know, like a, where, uh, a, you know, gravity is not going to affect it as much. You're going to be doing a ground-based sculpture. And the idea of an undulating city was what came to mind. You know, like it was going to be this kind of, you know, long, uh, gigantic uh, piece of something like 109 feet long by 32 feet wide of uh, this undulating wooden carpet. Keep in mind, this was happening and I, I, over a four, almost a four-year period. So all the things that I was going through at that time uh, started to sort of affect this work. So my journeys back and forth to China, which was happening right around the same time, working with porcelain and with uh, glazing and color was starting to sort of introduce itself to, you know, to the work. And what ended up happening was it started it forced its way into this uh, city in the grass. It became like less of a actual city and more of a car because of the color that I was experiencing in China. And so that's how that all got going.
0: So we're talking about city in the grass, which is called city in the grass. But usually, you title your works with numbers. You number them, so number seventy-eight, number whatever. And, and you've talked about that in other interviews, so I'll probably leave it alone. But if I if I mention, for example, number one fifty-three, is your recall such that you'll know which one I'm talking about? <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can I can tell you honestly, this, this is all cataloging uh, per, for cataloging purposes. If you were, if I was no longer here, you know, you would be able to go backwards and say, "Okay, yeah, this one comes before that one," because guess what? You know, like a one becomes comes before two, and so on and so forth. So I and, and so like I know what number eight is because a number eight is a mother piece of all my works, and uh, in effect, it's like uh, you know because number eight is actually created from one to seven. So there is no one to seven because they be they, they, they were taken apart to create number eight, and that is. The process has also been uh, a part of uh, how I realized my work is that there's a layering uh, of, of, of things that are happening in each work, a uh, life, so to speak. Each work has sort of a life force, but the longer they live and the more iterations, the stronger the work becomes. So I there's nothing sacred in the studio. So things are taken apart and put into, you know, like new works on a nonstop. So, I, you know, it's all a part of this uh, winding journey. So the numbering has everything to do with allowing the viewer to actually, you know, you you know, the work is. I don't feel the work is egocentric, so it's like you. I pull myself far enough away out of it. my experiences and my travels with the work are, are all about are, are for me. They're not necessarily for the viewer. I'm handing them this uh, piece of, uh, of 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 life, which is the artwork, and and I'm allowing them to find themselves in it. It becomes a mirror, you know. So they should be allowed to see themselves without any cues or hints. And that's what titles do. And use words to sort of like try to explain art. You know, I've always I pulled away from that one a long time ago. You know, so so I think that like uh, uh, if, if you were to sort of go by the history of the work, yeah, sure. I mean, there's a there's a way of realizing these things, and um, I just think that it's a, it's a safer approach to allow the, uh, the work as much uh, leeway as possible, so that the viewer can find themselves. The viewer should be complicit in in, in uh, actually uh, realizing uh, the work, and I think that. You know, this this is one time where I allow a working title, because in the studio, we don't go around saying that is number one, that is number 20. And that is no. It's like uh, it's a like got working titles. So there's action black. There is, uh, you know, like and then, of course, there's city sitting in the grass and there's like a color. So and I would call out, OK, this is what we're working on right now. And it's not a number. It's a it's a it's a working title in the studio. So once R- Rappaport got a hold of the idea, I, when I said City in the Grass, it was just a working title in the studio so that uh, my workers would understand what we we're talking about. And when she got a hold of that, uh, she is, you know, said Brooke something else. I mean, love her to death. And she was just like, oh, uh, my God, that's such a boy, a wonderful title. I said, yeah, it's Brooke, honey, I don't really title things. And she is, you know, I just allowed that because my love of Brooke was what allowed me to sort of like, OK, let's do a City in the Grass. We'll allow that title to leave the studio. First and last time we'll ever do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, I love that that you reuse material to make new work. That and, 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 and Sheila Hicks does that too. And I love that the two of you, who are totally unalike share something fundamental. Yeah. So the, this this piece number one fifty three that I, I I mentioned has as its uh, as its kind of upper right hand portion a tombstone type shape laying on its side. And all the way around it, including underneath it, there is what appears to be um, the skyline of a city.
1: Yeah, what color? What
0: are the, co- what are the colors? Actually, brown. I mean, they're usually to be brown and brown black. Brown with a little bit of black. It's big. Um, it's really big. It's about two meters wide. So uh,
1: I, I think that there's definitely, uh,
0: in, a, in terms of comp- in terms of composition,
1: you know, like uh, in you know, in China, I mean, I'm telling you, there. Uh, uh, Certain things that occur in China that, you know, there's uh, digital copyright. So there I am creating uh, works. And, and a lot of times uh, these guys are just like, you know, waiting for you to finish something so they can like, you know, use it, <laughs> sell it off or something. So this has happened. So I've had an exhibition in Hong Kong, for instance, and I uh, got a call from a friend in Shanghai and asked me not to be upset. But, you know, she saw my work in a, in a clothing store in uh, Shanghai. You know, and of course, when I got to Shanghai, I went and visited it and I could have sworn and I looked at it. I said, well, yes, they took on all the, uh, the, uh, the cue points in, the, uh, in my works, but I knew it wasn't mine because there were certain things I wouldn't do, you know. But in the end, it, it's always interesting to know that, like, depending on the hand and the experience, you know, there's, a, there's, there's definitely a signature. You know, even though I don't sign, actually physically sign work, <laughs> you wouldn't know it's mine. Uh, based on your description, you're already sort of hitting points that would be. Okay, this will be an important part of a composition. For instance, you know, uh, it's almost like musical notes. You know, they're 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 your highs and your lows in your composition. And so as you're composing, you know, like uh, there are ways of sort of realizing, you know, yeah, this is how he would do this. You know, you know, so this is it. we're always very important.
0: We'll we'll have images of both one fifty three and one sixty three on uh, on manpodcast You know, another element in City in the Grass is is this textile element, and I think textile forms have been in your work for also uh, a half dozen or so years, at least since number 8E from 2013, we'll get an image of that one too. It's a work made of wood that is wall mounted, but features folds that push into a room. It's a piece that kind of recalls how El Tsui's work is folded and, and projects forward toward toward the viewer. 8E, oh, interesting, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, but but excuse me for not actually being knowledgeable, at least about these numbers, but I can tell you they're important numbers. And I can tell you the very images that you might may conjure up the very same, but they will be actually uh, worked at my very high, at, at high points in terms of my, my trajectory. Uh, number 14, for instance, and I know exactly what that worked. I know number eight, number 14, uh, number 43, which actually is probably, I would say, the first introduction of something that would be called color, uh, though it's under a veil of rust. Number 43 is the introduction of all the uh, rust. And so you can think of the work in terms of periods. There, there's the introduction first of, like, say, a piece like number eight, and the introduction of decay material. Oxidation comes into play with metal, uh, also decay, comes in with number 14. And then a culmination of both those things come together in number 43. And if you were to look at number eight, number uh, 14, and then you look at number 43, you would see exactly what I those are it's, a, it's like the coming together of those two uh, of number eight, number 14 uh, creates a piece like number 43. So there's always this these uh, peak moments or high points where you bring all the things that you've experienced, all the things that you collected and you bring them all into one crescendo. And it's like this explosion. And then it's a, uh, a eureka moment.
0: We'll be talking about some of those things more in a moment, um, just to kind of give listeners an idea of the path from 8 to 14 to 43. 8 is dated 1988, 43 is dated 1994. So the path unfolds over over the many years. Before we move on from City in the Grass, um, the, the, the textile element, do you remember a point in, in your career or in the last decade or so where textile-like forms became interesting to you?
1: Yeah, I think it started in the number what, what number 43 because if you to look at just the uh, under the rust you can see all the uh, different various materials and then you look at it at, holistically you look at it and you'll see that is it's a carpet
0: <laughs> yeah it's there are literally there are literally textiles in in 43 you know that are made up in
1: the- and all those voids and holes that are you know that 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 uh, seem like uh, catacombs or uh, that boxes uh, in number 43. I mean, there's a lot to sort of be gleaned from a piece like that. The uh, composition, how these voids sort of like activate the surface, how your eyes are pulled in. So i mean, understanding at that point uh, in a piece, then you fast forward to a piece like City in the Grass, and you see the undulation, the action, the uh, movement uh, in it work like this. It all stems from all of this, you know, like uh, all the things that came before. Uh, how to work at composition, how to pull the eye in, all the voids that are actually in uh, City in the Grass you, were, you could think about, you know, like a piece like number 43 and you can see how I'm pulling the viewer in and the constructs of number, uh, I'm sorry, of a city in the grass has a way of pulling in, uh, physically pulling in the audience so that they actually can sit on the piece. I mean, there are voids in it that actually say you can walk on the piece in order to get to, you know, the voids actually allow uh, the grass to peek through and they're big enough for you to actually plant your body in. So the, you plant your body directly into the voids uh, uh, instead of in the grass. And it's like it invites you to do that, you know. So immediately the kids uh, caught onto it. They jumped right onto the, those towers. And you know, they, they walked right onto the rug, onto the sculpture, which you never really would have thought, you know, anyone would have, like, uh, said it was okay to do this. I said it was okay to do it. There was no signage saying on the first day that this is what you should do. People naturally knew that this was a piece that they could sit on, that they could walk on, that they could climb on.
0: We'll we'll have images of all of these works we've been discussing on the website, but just as a point of reference, number 43 is in the St. Louis Art Museum collection, if that helps uh, some people recall it more quickly. You know, while we're talking about, about the beginning, about the early decades, especially back then, have described your work as, quote, sculptures that evolved from painting, and you often cite Pollock as a motivator. And so while I think that your work of the late 80s and the early 90s seems to address painting a lot, I mean, there's some Franz Klein and Norman Lewis and Ronald Lockett and Forrest Bess in number eight, and you mentioned number 14, and it has kind of a a Corn Ocean Park composition, but it also recalls kind of the layering in a paint chip, or even Alberto Burry or early Mimo Rotella. This is all a very long and, and verbose way of asking, even as you were making these obviously three-dimensional objects, what about painting did you want to hold on to or address?
1: Well, I, I can't say that I knowingly uh, held on to the idea of painting and the work, but the truth of it is that these things are wall-mounted. It has everything to do with uh, the, my approach to how I made art in the past. I mean, a, a painting was, uh, was really uh, it was about the wall. And that seems to be still a mainstay in uh, the majority of my work is that they activate uh, off of a uh, off of wall, they may not necessarily like uh, be about two dimensionality. They're three dimensional, but they definitely are. You know, recall my beginnings, just to think back on like how painting was introduced to me. I didn't even know anything about abstractions until I met, uh, ran into Paula. But are like artists like uh, like my God, like uh, uh, Maxwell Parish and uh, Norman Rockwell and Wyeths? So, I mean, all the folks who actually uh, did uh, physically sort of like uh, uh, work. A, uh, a composition based on what they were actually seeing, and I, I understood that that was how you made art. But once I saw uh, Jackson Pollock, you know that was completely uh, compromised. Yeah, that approach. And Pollock has stayed with me ever since. I mean, even Number Eight is, uh, is really a uh, a uh, sculpted version of a Pollock.
0: Is it a sculpted? Is it a sculpted version of a specific Pollock?
1: No, not a specific. No, no it, I'm never specific. You know, my it, it's it's all my work is really about experiences. And I'm not recalling on any particular experiences. Is it the fact that I'm alive and I'm taking in information? I'm collecting all this information and all this information is stored. So, you're, 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 you know, when I'm making work, I'm not saying I'm gonna make work about this specifically. That'd be, I, for me, that's, that's uh, uh, ridiculous. You know, you need to actually just be, you know, allow art to sort of pull you by the nose. You know, when I get up in the morning, I know exactly what I'm gonna be doing, I'm gonna be making art. So, it's like I'm going, I'm diving in because I'm gleaning from. A, a database. I'm not, I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, specifically calling on each thing and saying this is what it's going to be about, but I don't necessarily have to do that. All that st- information is already stored in me. So I can look after the fact, years after the fact, I can look back on number eight and say, my God, that's Pollock. And if I were to tell you that was Pollock, you would know, yes, of course it is. But you wouldn't necessarily see that in the beginning. You would see, oh my God, there's all this entangled dead animals and robes and, uh, and all this other material. But if I would say, okay, my beginning were Pollock, then you would go right directly at Pollock.
0: I would, but I'd probably go more toward Klein Lewis, Lockett, and Bess. <laughs> yeah, isn't that something
1: and, and and interesting? I wouldn't you know, there's a there's a there's a storehouse or a collective storehouse of information. Believe it or believe it or not believe it, but it's it, it's it we all are pulling from this as artists. We're pulling from each other. Whether or not you've seen it, or even if you did not see it, you're pulling from that.
0: No, it's like it's like how a writer has to try not to write like Joan Didion, right? I mean, it's just you've read it so much; it's there.
1: It's there, and then you don't necessarily. Even, and it's so sort of recalls that in your work it doesn't necessarily mean you saw it. It's the fact that that person created it. It is now out in the open, and you're pulling from that.
0: You stood in the rain and got wet.
1: Thank you. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're mentioning you know, all these artists, and I can say. I can say I can say that one, not that one, this one, not that one, as in I didn't see that one or I'm not familiar with that one, but in a lot of ways I am.
0: So from painting to minimalism, to my eyes, it looks like you pivoted from addressing painting to addressing minimalism in around 1990 with a work like Number 17, which is made from canvas, rust, and cotton. It's a work that riffs on the cube and begins an engagement with seriality that obviously continues in your work today. In a moment, I want to talk about the social and historical context of that shift. But first, more broadly, did did minimalism as an ism interest you? Was that something that you that you specifically wanted to take on?
1: Well, honestly, minimalism came about as a vehicle for practical. If you're making things that are too big to get out of your out of your apartment, you know, which is where I was working, I wasn't always in the studio, so it was like you're working in an apartment. You have to be able to take these things apart. In order to get them out, a friend of mine came over and said, how are you going to get this out of here? And I was just, you know, I was just about creating the work. I wasn't about, you know, really getting it out of there. But he brought up an interesting point. If I needed to get it out of here, I couldn't get it out of here. So all these things began to sort of break them up into these, like, you know, you know, like a a reasonable size uh, increments that I could hang without a bunch of studio systems. So that means, like, if I were to have a plate that was like 24 by 24. I could take a bunch of those and create APs, either puzzle fitting it together or joining them, locking them together. You know, so so it was it was really a, a vehicle for you know for practical and then minimalism. is just an additive to that. If you break up break up things in grids, people immediately go for that construct as minimalism. And I'm telling you, it started out for me as you know. I mean, I understand it intellectually, of course, but I understand it as an, an, an absolute.
0: So starting. With number 17 and around 1990, as, as I mentioned, you are on the seriality playing field ever after. And so this is going to take me a second to build to. But when I think of seriality, I think of Ruth Asawa, who in the 1950s is uh, going back to looms and the textile trade and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and who is making work that engages with seriality that addresses its, in, its initial industrial era terms. And then, and then you get the big male minimalists in the 60s and early 70s who are interested in bringing contemporary industry, machining into art, updating seriality to an America that was then the leader, the world leader in industrial and serialized industrial output. The works in which you first address seriality are made from substantially cotton. Were you intentionally putting together cotton in seriality and cotton in industry to make a point about? how black lives in America had been viewed as an industrial machine. You know, I'll
1: tell you something about that body of work, which actually, uh, that would have been in 1992. Uh, My introduction, the true explosion onto the art world was that exhibition in 1992, which did have the uh, cotton wall uh, piece in it.
0: Well, 23, 24, and 25 all have cotton.
1: Yeah, they all have cotton. All of them actually are, you know, have cotton involved in them. Uh, 25 being an actual cotton wall that's been a part of the uh, Rubell's traveling exhibition for the last like 10 years now. That is uh, a statement uh, that was made then, did not find it necessary to sort of continue to sort of like, once I sort of like hit a point or say something uh, absolutely uh, at uh, at its loudest, it's not necessary to continue to beat that. So you won't necessarily find a bunch of cotton works thereafter you know what i need to say that's uh in that statement was said then in 1992 we're living in a period right at this moment where you can actually you know like uh make a career you know on like uh, uh whatever your your uh your angst or whatever your 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 journey is or you know like uh who you are as a as a woman who you are as a as a uh, As a homosexual, who you are as a you know as a as a man or a black man, it's like all these things are a part of art language now, very popular right now, but back then, I was just you know I felt it necessary to sort of like get this thing out, but once it was out, it was like, okay, what else is there out there that I need to sort of apply myself to so it wasn't really uh so much a a, a political statement that you needed to sort of like be on this drum uh, for the rest of your days because uh, if you were to look at uh, that body of work and then go to the catalog and run through what came thereafter, you won't find any more cotton works, I'll tell you.
0: No, but you do find um, works that include textiles, which are made from cotton, canvas that's made from cotton.
1: I'll tell you something that Jack, Jack uh, well, I mean, you, you, well, you've, been, we, you've been talking uh, in those terms. If you want to sort of like pull out a political statement or, or a trajectory, uh, you can find that just about in anyone's work. You know, for for a Black person to work with cotton, to actually work with that material, it can be nothing but a political statement. And I remember when people didn't know who I was, what I looked like, during that 92 exhibition, they went to that exhibition believing that, you know, uh, that, my God, uh, they saw Ava Hess. They saw, you know, artists from um, de Provera. I mean, they thought I was European. And once they found out that I was Black, that was it, baby. It was like, okay, you know, Cotton, black—that's okay. But I'm saying that in effect, if, you know, like uh, the audience will actually finalize the uh, supposed conclusion of what this work is, what it's about. I put it out there. In the end, it's up to the viewer to sort of like come to their conclusions about what they're seeing. If you're seeing cotton there after that, I'm going to tell you, holistically speaking, you're not going to find any more cotton walls. Is my point. And you can go to the catalog and you can look. But if you can talk about like, oh, well, you use uh canvas, that's cotton. I'm how many artists use canvas and cotton? <laughs> that's No, we all are painting on canvas. So it's like, uh, yeah, it is made from cotton duck. So just because I'm, you know, an artist of color, we're not necessarily gonna sort of say, oh, that's about uh a race. That's a race issue. Uh, now if I pronounce that and said it was then yeah, sure, you can go in that direction. But the fact is, you know, like uh if you make a piece about you know, like if you're a Black artist and you work with the cotton material, the actual cotton batting, that is a political statement. And that got said, and it got said very well in 1992. Yeah,
0: 1992 was a really big year for Black art in America.
1: There there are at least three, maybe even four, there's like three solid books that you could actually get that uh, that I was a part of in terms of like collecting uh, uh, works and uh, so that you could actually go through a catalog and so sort of like, now, you'll see cast paperwork, you'll see rust works. Now, there is, like Jack Witt used to say, something that was always interesting. He talked about a, the sensibility. If you were French, you had a French sensibility. If you were German, you had a German sensibility. If you were Black, you have a Black sensibility. And that is actually, I believe, the true statement based on actually where and how you are put on this planet, a part of your DNA probably is pulling from uh, those places. Now, that is the first place you're pulling from. The next place that you're pulling from would be, you know, like the fact that you are a part of, holistically speaking, you know, a mass gleaning from, you know, from a mass. You know, so as a person, you're gleaning from, you know, all these things. As I was saying, as I stated before, a record of of our journey on this planet, our journey on this planet, not about a black man's journey on this planet, but collectively as human beings, our journey on this planet. That's why I can go to a place like China or Peru. And come out of there with this information. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, uh, it's, 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 it's following its way through me. I'm a receiver of that information. You know, it's not like I'm, re- it's, I'm, it's re- repelled because I'm coming at it from a perspective of, of a black man. I'm coming at it as a human being. And that is your base that you're working off of. That is a solid base to work from. And it will never, ever push you out. You are always a, all, all inclusive as a human being. So you're pulling from that on a
0: constant. You you mentioned Jack Witten. Jack was uh, a professor of yours at, at Cooper Union, and, and you two remain close ever after. To me, I, seeing Cotton and Seriality come into your work at the same time. My guest is Leonardo Drew. We'll be right back after a break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents... Pop America, 1965-1975, to 1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first-ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Celebrate wine and inspiring conversation at the Getty Villa on June 2nd and 16th. Learn more about the exhibition Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions. Hear UCLA classicist Catherine Morgan discuss Plato's relevance today. And enjoy wine and appetizers with fun-loving philosophers in an enchanting outdoor setting. Find out more about this perfect summer event and get tickets at getty.edu 360. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents More Like a Forest, paintings and sculptures by Richard Allen Morris, at its downtown location through October 27th. This presentation, comprising a sculptural series from the artist's collection, as well as paintings drawn from the museum's own holdings, highlights Morris's ceaseless transformation of ordinary materials into extraordinary creations. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And now back to my conversation with Leonardo Drew, just very much screams to me that the original seriality in a way was exploited black labor, that the work is referencing that the use of black lives by white Americans and Europeans, that those black lives were extinguishable once labor had been wrought from them. And that even if we we, we carry it forward, I mean, these are works you're making in the early to mid-90s, at the time when the federal government is also, in the early Clinton administration, radically uh, ramping up policies that will lead to the warehousing of particularly black men in, in the criminal justice system. And of course, you came out of, as a young man growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, public housing, which was another kind of white American way of dealing with black people by putting them somewhere where they didn't have to look at them so you mentioned a moment ago that you went away from cotton there's one other work i want to ask about that's a prominent cotton work if you were that's a terrible phrase it's number 50 from 1996 the left hand half of the work is is 10, 10 rectangles of cotton and it's juxtaposed against kind of rusted plastic yeah
1: yeah right 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 wow I haven't seen that one in eons where's that thing but yeah that is a uh... Yeah, tell me about tell me more about that one.
0: <laughs> it's a piece that plays the cotton, which is white, against this used, aged, rusted air quotes discarded plastic. What about juxtaposing those two things against each other? Did you like?
1: But what what that the juxtaposing those two elements? You know, the rust is one thing, uh, one that was entering into my language, and I mean the sheer. The uh, you know obvious uh, decay aspect of that uh, material, it, it is rust is just unyielding in terms of uh, uh, what it gives the uh, the uh, form of storytelling. What it yields is just amazing. Working that in obviously compositionally with cotton, uh, this, this is a no brainer. You know, it's it's a it's it's a punch in the face is what it is. Surprisingly, surprisingly, like I didn't make more of these uh, uh, rusted cotton <laughs> combinations. I think about that uh, yeah there might have been some subdued versions of that uh if we were to go through the catalog i can uh, sort of like point out and you know what, what while we're doing this i better get the catalog because <laughs> it's right here why, why don't i just do that
0: well while you're getting it i mean it, it that piece number 50 you know reads like a reference to how the people who made cotton possible were used right oh
1: i'm looking at it man oh my goodness Number 50. Oh, wow. Yes, it, it is something. But I'll tell you another piece that actually works off of that and and, and, and has a minimal aspect to number 51, not too long after that one, right? Uh, it, it has this very digi- digitized, uh, also cityscape aspect to it, number 51, uh, w- which also has a uh, and
0: rust. And 51 has that seriality and that reference to cities or warehousing of people or...
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Th- listen, all that is undeniable. Now, honestly, if I were, like I said, recent things are created, and then the story is told thereafter, if that makes sense. Now, if I were to go back to number 43, um, looking at that piece and looking at, you know, like uh, these voids, i mean the catacombs when I visited Dakar, going to Gory Island and seeing the uh, catacombs uh, where my folks were held. It's pretty evident in, in pieces like number 49 and number 43. Absolutely, there's no way that you can sort of work your way around that one. That 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 where those works will recall those periods in history, and they also will recall, like obviously, tenements and things like that. So, uh, in the uh, drawings that came many years later, uh, drawings like one A and two A, they are absolutely definitely uh, they will, will recall uh, some of these uh, you know structures like uh, tenement houses or middle, you know minimalist grid. You know, so you know it, it, you know in the hands of whomever is you know like uh, uh, at the helm of these things yeah indeed you will you know find a language to sort of like to understand uh what is actually visually happening happening in front of you now keep in mind that i'm actually just a recorder of information i'm an artist and that's what i do and it's like i'm dragging in all these things abstracting them and putting them back out and you as a viewer are left to make sense of it okay and i would never specifically say that this is what this work is about what you're saying in effect is what you're reading and you can talk about the history of our country and the treatment of, of my people, uh, uh, of, you know, throughout history and read that into the works. But I'm going to say that I'm, the, I'm a vehicle probably for grabbing information and, and and pushing it back out there. Now, if we were to introduce these very same things in another country, what would the read be then? You know, if they weren't familiar with my work. What would the read be then? They might be drawn to it aesthetically, you know, for uh, for various reasons, uh, or just like uh, they feel the weight, the emotional weight of what they're standing in front of. But I'm only giving them a number. I'm not giving them a title. I'm not giving them any hints. But if they're reading, you know, someone's subtext, you know, like uh, uh, writings on these uh, words, yeah, sure, they'll they'll use that. But I'm saying if we honestly want to sort of like introduce these words as as totem, as absolute uh, sculpted images, uh, emotionally weighted structures. You know, like um, if you're standing in front of a Richard Serra, it's like, OK, make sense of that.
0: You know, given what we're talking about now and the relationship between your work and, and history, broadly speaking, I, 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 when I asked you if, you know, what from painting you wanted to hold on to and address, I was wondering or curious if one of your answers was going to be that painting was traditionally how art had addressed history you know that history painting was once the the, the 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 king of the heap in in terms of what what made a painting matter what 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 the highest form of painting was and and your work is there's a lot of history in in, in your work You mentioned rust a moment ago. I would be um, an incompetent interviewer if I didn't bring it up. Because one of your trademark materials, of course, since the 1990s has been rust. It matters enough to you that in the materials that you list as being in your work, rust is right there alongside the words paint or paper or cotton or whatever else. Do you remember when you first started thinking about rust as something you could use as a material?
1: Honestly, you know, if you're on a search for uh, color, you know you're going to be drawn towards those things that you're attracting. You imagine yourself as a magnet uh, pulling in information. You know, watching the uh, decay and dilapidation of New York when I was, you know, when I first arrived, that would have been in 1980, going um, hunting for uh, scraps of material. Usually I was always sort of drawn to uh, those things that were aging, like the uh, rust on the highway, side of a highway. Taking a wire brush and, like, bringing that material home, and trying to, you know, figure out how to paint with that, how to work that. It means so name. I mean, like, uh, uh, the, the history aspect of it, the, uh, the very sheer weight of the material itself, what, uh, was it's, it's just a, seemingly in anyway, a byproduct of the actual visual appeal of it, you know? So once you sort of, like, are drawn to a type of material, it will channel its way through your body. And you will find, you know, once you find your voice, you will take that material and you would add it, or it would become a part of your language, a part of your vocabulary. And so Rust actually is just one of those uh, words that are now just a part of my vocabulary. And I can take it and I can uh, drag it through a uh, number of levels and number of statements uh, and have it make sure, it always makes sure that it actually does what it needs to do. So, but that does go for almost all the materials that I work with. And we can talk in terms of periods. we can talk in terms of the cast paper, we can talk in terms of the rock, we can talk in terms of the cotton, where I am right now with wood.
0: You know, what, let me, let me, let me stop you there because I do want to talk about some of those, <laughs> those very materials. So I have a, a, a short list of materials that you're, most of which, all, all, maybe all of which, you're still working with and that have been in the work for the last 20 years, you know, so that have a long history in your work. And how about if I just name something and then maybe you kind of tell me what it makes you think of or, or why you use it. First one is one you just mentioned, compressed paper. Books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I see, says the blind man. Yeah. You Forgive me. Did you start? So, so you make rust. You farm rust. So have you made compressed paper? Is that?
1: Yeah. All, this, all these things are made in the studio. People have the uh, impression that these things are found. Uh, they some, they're made from. found objects. I don't work with found objects. I have to go through the uh, material, uh, the life of the material, uh, the rigors of like, actually becoming the weather in order to sort of get it to where it needs to be.
0: So then how did you come up with the idea to compress paper? Because that is not something that is kind of in one's normal day-to-day experience. For
1: <laughs> well, listen, it, one, 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 one situation actually introduces the next. So compressed paper could have been just the uh, byproduct of something else that I was doing. And if, if you're aware enough, you'll say, oh, look, something else is occurring over here. And, you, you know, like I, I'm focused just enough. To sort of know what I'm after, but at the same time, understand that there are branch-offs from what you're after that you need to sort of grab hold of and add to the journey. So you need to sort of like not just like focus so you know, deeply on uh, that one point that you're after, but you need to sort of understand that there are always going to be branch-offs. So pay, from uh, compressed paper to uh, cutting uh, material, uh, brand new material, and, uh, and then finding a way to sort of age it. All these things are a part of a path, you know, as you're sort of moving forward. And, and it will you know, all these things will be, you'll introduce all these other levels of possibilities. And it's up to you to sort of like take note as you're going along. So compressed paper would have been a part of that. So it's not like it's just like one where I'm saying, how am I going to compress paper? No, compressed paper came about because it was a byproduct of another situation.
0: What was the other situation?
1: I couldn't tell you. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only tell you that. I, I'm, I'm rotating seven crying babies in the studio. So it's like uh, all the words are like, I have to have seven. So, it, and they will assist each other in order to sort of resolve each other's situation. So if you're, if, it's like, you're never really gonna fall into a slump if you have all this noise, these uh, seven uh, situations uh, that are like begging for attention.
0: I strongly suspect you learned that from Jack
1: Whitten. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think that like, uh, you know, like uh, Jack, definitely uh, his uh, trajectory, how he approached material and, and actually developing tools Uh, For realizing things, now having uh, Jack, knowing Jack uh, as an instructor at Cooper Union, and then knowing him also uh, traveling with him uh, in Greece has been, you know, like a a, really a godsend. But there, you know, keep in mind also that uh, my art career started when I was 13, and so there were always older artists around me, mentors. Jack just being, uh, you know, a, a part of a long line of mentors during my young life that were instrumental. And me actually realizing what needs to happen uh, or what was the next step in terms of like uh, this life as an
0: artist. I, you've mentioned making work at 13 a couple of times. I should fill in for listeners that uh, when you were 13, you had a show in a bank in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I think one of the paintings you showed was uh, a Captain America painting. You, am, <laughs> yes. I, am I remembering that right? Uh,
1: yes. And I remember the photographer laughing. Because he understood the uh, political implication of, of, of me standing there with my actually my coat that was missing buttons and like uh, me standing there with these, you know, my mother uh, got on me about oh, why would you pose uh, with these uh, dirty clothes, you know, like uh, I, I mean, I didn't know I was, you know, being, you know, photographed for a newspaper article, you know, and here I am standing in front of this life size Captain America, actually larger than life, Captain America, he's as big as me. And like, uh, and I'm standing with a frown on my face because I didn't understand why the photographer was laughing.
0: You had a chance earlier in your career to work as a comic book artist and illustrator, and in the last decade, kind of starting with Kerry James Marshall's Rhythm Master Comics, um, which I think he first produced for a Carnegie International, and then I forget what the second time he, he he revisited and updated the Rhythm Master idea was. And, and then, of course, Black Panther comes along. Obviously, things have turned out fine for you. But given what has happened in comics and then film in the last decade, do you ever wonder what if?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, honestly, um, I still do follow graphic novels. Don't read them, but I look at the, the facility involved and the way computers are interjected and sort of become a part of how to realize our comics. I think it's all just fantastic. Uh, and it's all art, actually. So I never understood this idea of hierarchy, but I, the fact that I was on both sides, meaning as, an, as a potential illustrator, and then going into the fine arts and understanding when you're in school, that, that anyone that had facility was frowned on. You know, and here I was coming in with all this facility.
0: It it is it is you know about that about that dichotomy. It is interesting that in some ways America's most important political essayist is ta Coates, of course, and he's also the guy who makes Black Panther happen, right? So, so maybe those divisions you and I grew up with are being erased. Maybe not so much in the art world, but, but the, the guy who has rebirth reparations as an issue in America, really, you know, not single-handedly, but, but in terms of putting it back on the mainstream agenda, sort of single-handedly also makes comic book movies.
1: Yeah. Mr. Coates, I think it's very interesting where all this fits into where we are politically and where we are as human beings collectively. Uh, it's interesting. So I think it's, it's okay, man. Cause it's like 40 acres and a mule. You know, uh, yeah, sure. Like, all those things are possible now. You know, if you're coming in uh, definitely with something, you know, supposedly to offer, uh, this idea of uh, saying, okay, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's time, I, I think it seems appropriate. But I think that, like, uh, how necessary it is, I think that that door has been kicked down and wide open in terms of, like, you can get it. You know, like, uh, uh, you don't necessarily have to come in uh, uh, begging for anything. It can, it can be gotten. And so uh, I do uh, absolutely believe that, like uh, um, as a artist who survived from uh, 1974 as the uh, first exhibition up until now, I understood it as a long and winding journey that has been always educational, always uh, also a part you know, uh, of a sort of like a larger collective. If you want to sort of like count on race as a as a means to an end, uh, these days is absolutely possible. But back then, you know, like uh, you uh, we were definitely working towards a moment, which we are now visiting at this moment. They're yeah. all challenged right now. But I think that like, uh, it is definitely a, a, a something that has, a, we've had a black president. Thank you, you know. <laughs> you know, and Chris Rock, not that long ago, was on uh, uh, the this, this this case that, oh, we're never going to see that in our lifetime. Two seconds later, two seconds later, here he was. so I think that this uh uh this country is an interesting one, an interesting uh experiment, you know, and possibilities and possibilities.
0: I digressed, so let me turn back to materials an- another material that's been in the work for a long time that th- your use of shoes. You've used shoes in a lot of work. I know, I know you said that you don't um, use found materials.
1: All right, let's go back. So found objects is like something I avoid. When it go- comes to the cast paper objects, different story. Because those are actually cast from actual objects. So you need to have that as a ghost image. Yes, yes. So that's because when you, you go on, a, there, there, there was a moment when it was like for two reasons that these objects came into play. And that was because they were a part of the uh, experiment for casting things. And I wasn't making these things, you know, like from nowhere, they were being cast off of actual objects. The remnants of those very same objects from number 80 and from number 90 were then used from number 75 and number 77. You will see objects that are recognizable as actual objects. Those were the ones that actually were trying, attempting to introduce color. And then from there those very same objects led into, like, number uh, 80. So that, it, it's all in order. So number 75, you can see actual objects coming into play as a part of a gigantic grid or uh, as a, a motherboard, you know? So objects can become a part of number 80, if that makes sense. So there's always, a one like, the work, they, they always assist each other in order to make it to the next uh, iteration of cells, if that makes sense. If you go through the uh, numbers sort of, like, uh, in order, you'll see how certain works introduce the next phase or next iteration.
0: Another material that's been nearly constant in your work throughout is wood. What about wood holds your attention, even as you've moved on from other materials?
1: Well, I think that the fact that trees it begins with uh, trees, actually the, the power impact and the history that's stored within them. The innate uh, energies that are uh, emitted, emitted from uh, trees. I mean, that thats that's for me, it's like a you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, the salt of the earth, the, uh, the actual energies are drawn from these, uh, from that material. So I think that is a base, it's unavoidable for me. I mean, I think I've used it all throughout. It's always been a part of my work. If not, if not, you know, like the first thing that you see, uh, it has been in some way a a part of uh, the actual uh, composing of a the, uh, composition.
0: There There's a work of yours at the Denver Art Museum, number 162 from 2012 that you've described as, quote, a history of places and things that you, you've you done. So so it, it really is kind of a source book of images and techniques. It reminds me of the extraordinary 1922 Monet water lily painting in Toledo, into which Monet packs all of the ways he had come up with of painting a water lily into one painting. And so your number 162 is dominated by a thing... <laughs> <laughs> an object in the middle of of the field that reads as a tree with roots shooting down and tendrils shooting upward. So the centrality of the tree was crucial.
1: Absolutely. So 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 the fact that if you're seeing uh, roots or the uh, uh, the tree of life or or branch offs, all these things that metaphor for uh, what the tree represents, central in that very piece. It's like it's a it, you know, like you can see the uh, uh the tendrils or the branches, the roots actually becoming these past works of mine, so like, uh, there's these maquettes that are actually you know past works. If you look closely enough, you'll see, oh, here's number forty three there's number uh one fifty three there's number uh yeah, so they're all in there, you know like uh, there's even yeah, cotton drawing uh, that's embedded in that too it, it is uh, definitely, and there have been pieces thereafter. That have done that very same thing, but more disguised. they would be like actually coated in black, but you will actually look close enough, you'll see uh, maquettes of actually past works. yeah 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 yeah. And the black piece that I'm thinking of that will definitely uh, have that. And the uh, exhibition that's up right now at uh, Gallery Le Long. There's a horizontal piece, and I cannot you can you know you can you know get the uh, the title and the uh, image from the uh, gallery, but uh, it's in the exhibition now. And it has these uh, maquettes on the side and you will know, you'll say, oh, I know that piece and I know that one, too. But it's hidden within this composition. But it's all black, Uh, unlike the piece that's at Denver, which is actually it is the actual color of the uh, past work.
0: The work in Denver and a lot of other works have not just uh, lumber, you know, the refined product, but they feature kind of roots and branches and and pre-wood wood if you will why did you decide to also use roots and branches
1: oh well uh, just the idea that like I said you can be a receiver of information you 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 know you become an antenna or rooted to the ground in order to sort of glean the information of, of, of places that you travel to so whenever I'm moving around you know I understand that in order to sort of reap the benefits of where you are, physically where you are, you need to sort of pull from, geographically pull from that place that you're in at that moment. Within that earth, you know, you're rooted to that place at that moment. You can pull from, you can pull that information out. I will pull that information out and I'll hand it over to you. It goes through me and abstract it and then it's pushed out. That's art. That's how it's made as far as I'm concerned.
0: What's what's kind of great about the roots and the branches in that Denver piece is they dominate the piece. There may be two-thirds of the piece, but behind them, air quotes behind them in that source book of things you've used, is, is that exact image almost. It's, I think it's a reference to number 95, which is a kind of Tower of Babel-shaped piece you made. That's wall mounted, but projects into a room. We were talking about layers before, and that piece is 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 full of layers. Two more things. In 2000, one of your first big museum shows was a uh, a Hirshhorn show in their Directions, what used to be their Directions series, and you created an enormous, I think it was like 20 feet long, piece number 77 that was a site-specific installation. The museum, you know, which acquired other of your work, did not acquire that one. And it no longer exists. Could you tell the story of what happened to what was that piece?
1: Well, I mean, honestly, nothing is really sacred when it comes to my process. So if I'm creating something, uh, I go through that. And the next phase of that is uh, if if it's possible to actually take it to the next phase of self, next next, uh, iteration of uh, of what is uh, necessary to sort of carry it through to the next life. So a piece like uh, number 77, which is one you're describing, which was actually like 35 feet long.
0: 35, good Lord.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like 17 17 feet tall.
0: It was floor to ceiling. uh, It was was literally floor -to to ceiling.
1: Took on that whole space. You know, all the bits and uh, pieces, you know, like that then became a lot of that, uh, uh, those parts became number uh, 80. You will see that it's a constant throughout my work that, that uh, number, number uh, actually number 43 actually comes from number 40. And combination of actually number 40 and number 39. And th- all you have to do is look closely enough. You say, oh, my God, there's the same boxes. There they are. There, there, there is always the uh, potential. They're taking these works to the next uh, phase of self. And I'm always open to that. So there's never a point where I, I think that you lose a work of art. Now, historians will tell you that that is not true, that that work is no longer no lar- exists. I will tell you from the um, perspective of the uh, person that creates it, that, that there's always potential in that material. And the fact that it, it, it's like the Grand Canyon is layered. It has all this history in it. The more you beat it, the more you, it lives, the more it, it, it takes on you know, more history. And like um, once it reaches its final self, it brings all that history. So it's like a life lived.
0: And and I'm pretty sure that, you know, if we had if you hadn't already just done it, I could find five things that came out of the physical parts of 77 because there are there are recognizable parts. The last thing I want to ask is maybe a slightly oddball question, but it also relates to what we were just discussing in terms of, of number 77. You are quite often photographed working in your studio, you know, not not sitting on a stool and, and directing, but, you know, on your hands and knees and doing things to artworks, doing very specific things with your hands, with objects that are smaller than your hands, making these small things part of the bigger things which we understand when we look at the photograph, has also been made by hand. I am guessing that you're not just willing to be photographed th- this way, that you've kind of pointedly, maybe even almost conceptually encouraged it? Well, no, honestly,
1: the, the people who are usually invited in are artists. So they're usually making their art. I mean, they're photographers, but they're making their art. So they're serious about like, what they're getting. They become invisible in the studio. So the best of them, it's like the decisive moment. Andre Cardio-Bresson says decisive moment. That's what they're there for. And they're capturing moments and they're capturing compositions. I think uh, the best of them, John Barron's photograph or Mikey Kawakita's photograph. Maki was here for like three months living in the space and capturing all these great photos. And only recently have we actually used them in a book. But the fact is, uh, those photos were taken back in the late '90s, and they all actually capture a moment. They catch me in either, either uh, working or maybe sitting in front of a television. So Maki was here photographing, I think, uh, like from start to finish. I mean, like, a, and there are some by happenstance, uh, certain photographs were taken when I was making a cotton wall, be pushing the bales down the streets on Broadway, all the way down to, to, to you know, using Jack Whitten Studio actually from 26th Street, pushing this cotton bale. Uh, down the street, because I had to get the uh, cotton to the uh, studio, and Jack was voting in his studio to create the work. And so, uh, in effect, you know, like uh, these uh, photographs are, you know, they are the truth of what was acting, actually happening at those moments. They were the decisive moments that were captured. So, I would love to sort of I take credit and say I pointed someone and Tell them, them to do this. But the fact is, these people are just great photographer and I was fortunate enough to have them around and they all, all wanted me as a subject and so they became invisible and that is the best photographer they can do that they just, you know become a part of, it. and they're there and they're not you don't even know they're there
0: Leonardo Drew thanks very much <laughs> thank you my pleasure that's all for this week's show the modern art notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth